imagine that. Why aren't you like your brother Jesus? Well, he's God for one thing, you know. I mean, but the reality of that, I mean, I'm sure Mary had to play favorites to a certain degree. And and growing up as the half-brother of Jesus, I don't know, I'll be interested to, to someday maybe learn about some of the inner workings of that, but James was not a believer in his brother. I mean, he, I know him and he's been the, who knows what he said. He's been the fair-haired child, the favored one, and and I'm not going to be a follower of his. And he wasn't a follower of his until he saw his brother rise from the dead. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, James became all in. And and as a follower of Christ, James ended up um, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, which was a, needless to say, in, in that day was a key place. And um, James was a key figure in the early church. But it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that transformed him from an unbeliever, skeptic, to all in a follower of Jesus Christ. So James is writing this letter to Hebrew believers that were scattered because of the persecution that had come. And um, it, it was the persecution as a result of Stephen stoning in the book of Acts. You can go back and look at that. But that was what was going on, and they were scattered for the sake of the gospel. And uh, you, you imagine that. They, they left their home. They left their property. They left their family. They had to go and reestablish homes and work and their circle of friendships, everything. I mean, maybe some of you have experienced that, but by and large, most of us have never experienced that. And and so they're scattered through all these areas, and this is a letter that James wrote to them. And they knew James very well, and, and James was able, he took the liberty to address uh, a number of issues here. It's an interesting book. Um, it doesn't teach us about salvation per se. Um, It teaches us about the behavior that people are saved should have in their lives. Really, there are are very few um, references to Christ. There's nothing about his crucifixion or his resurrection. There's nothing about the deity of Christ, nothing about justification or, or being regenerated, born again, they aren't mentioned because James assumed that who he was writing to 
either knew all about it and didn't need to be reminded, or they knew all about it and were true believers. But he was was addressing this, and he also knew that some had accepted Christ intellectually, but they were not really children of God. So he he writes this book that is, some have called it, the Proverbs of the New Testament. I love the book of Proverbs, and it is very practical and pithy and to the point. And James is along the same line. It's he he you don't read in an in introduction here. He just jumps right in and he starts giving things and many topics. And some have, have said that James really built a lot on the Sermon on the Mount, which is very to the point as well in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. So James gives this book, and he's really concerned that um, some of the Christians' lives were not reflecting what their profession was. They had become... um, indifferent. The cares of this life had kind of choked out some of their priorities, and and they were succumbing to impatience and bitterness and materialism and apathy. And so he's writing it for that purpose. Now, his purpose in writing this, as we mentioned, is that he's saying this is what a Christian's conduct should be. And and um, there were people that said at this time that a Christian's conduct was irrelevant to his salvation. And, um, and James is saying, no, if you're really saved, this ought to be in your life. Luther really had a struggle with the book of James, Martin Luther. In fact, he didn't like the book at all. He put it at the very back of his translation of the Bible. He thought James was writing about becoming a Christian. If you want to become a Christian, you need to do this and this and this and this. And um, James was really writing about Christians, and now that you are a Christian, this is how you should live. Some say that that Paul and James are contradicting each other because Paul says it's not of works lest any man should boast, and and we are justified by faith alone. And Paul was writing, addressing those that said you needed works in order to be saved. And he's saying, no, you are saved by faith alone. James wrote to counteract what individuals were saying, I'm saved, it doesn't matter how I live, I can do whatever I want. And he's saying, no, 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 if you're truly saved, these will be some manifestations that will show up in your life. And so this morning, Lord willing, we want to look that real Christianity will show up and we're going to we're going to list 
10 different areas that it will show up in our life. If we're really a Christian, anybody can say, I'm a follower of Christ. And, and people do. But if you're really a follower of Christ, there, there will be noticeable changes in your life. Notice if you'd look in James chapter 2, and, and James really gets in and deals with it in verse 14. I'll begin reading there, and then we'll come back and look at some of these areas. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by his works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So here he really gets into this matter. You say you have faith and you don't have any works that manifest an evidence of this faith. He said that's dead faith. If there is genuine faith, there will be things that will show up in your life. And through this little book, he gives many areas, and we want to look at that. First and foremost, real Christianity shows up in trials and adversities. In particular, to our attitude, a genuine Christian, attitude in the midst of trials and adversities. And we're not going to be able to take the time to read all the verses that, that relate to this but you notice verse 2 of chapter 1 of the book of James. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trial of your faith produces patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. So he says, okay, as a believer, these trials, and again, he's writing to people Great trials they've had to move, relocate. Their whole life has been turned upside down. They've had great trials. And he said, as a real follower of Jesus Christ, you will understand that God is at work in your life in these trials. And he's using them to produce even greater fruit. So rather than 
complaining and grumbling about this trial. He said a real Christian is going to understand that, okay, God, this isn't what I wanted, but you have a purpose in this, and I understand that. Do we see God's purposes in our trials? When a trial comes, a testing comes, adversity comes, is your first prayer to pray for deliverance from it? Or is it to pray that God would give you wisdom to learn what he wants you to learn through it? And so he's saying, we are followers of Christ and we see life differently. And, and he says then that... Um, we, we should have a different response to the trials that come into our life. The same trials that come into unbelievers' lives come into believers' lives. But our responses should be different. God isn't so much concerned about our trials as he is our responses to the trials. And, and in understanding that, James is, is trying to bring this home to them and, and help them to realize this. Then he goes in and he says, uh, a real Christian, real Christianity will show up in how we deal with temptation. Beginning at verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil Neither does he tempt anyone, but everyone is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. How do we respond when we're tempted? Do we blame others? Years ago, there used to be a familiar saying, the devil made me do it. James is saying, no, a real Christian takes personal responsibility and understands, I sinned because I wanted to. I was drawn away of my own desires. Nobody makes you sin. You know, we say, you made me so angry. They didn't make you angry. They may have revealed the anger, but they didn't make you angry. We choose our sin because we're, we desire it. We're drawn away of our own lust. And he says a real Christian, it doesn't mean a real Christian isn't tempted. It doesn't mean a real Christian doesn't sin. But we take personal responsibility for it. I was wrong. I sinned. We don't blame others. From the very beginning, man's nature has always been this. Who caused you to sin? And Adam said, the wife that you gave me. And Eve said, the serpent. And, and everybody was laying the blame on somebody else. And a real Christian will come back and say, I sinned. It was my choice. It doesn't mean that others maybe had some part to play in it, but ultimately no one can make you sin but you. 
So a real Christian has, it will show up in our response to temptation. Look at chapter 1 and verse 22. So we're kind of skipping through the book of, of James here this morning, but to look at areas that James is saying it will show up. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Real Christianity shows up in doing the word. What James says is, it is a good thing to hear the word. It is a good thing to read the word, but don't deceive yourself in thinking, wow, I'm pretty good. I'm here at church today. I'm hearing the word. He says you're deceiving yourself. It only matters if you obey the word. We sang the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Obedience. There, there's no reward for good intentions. There's, there's no reward for hearing the word. The difference between the wise man and the foolish man. You know, we sing, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the winds came and and the wise man's house stood. But the foolish man's house fell flat. You go back and look at that. The only difference, they both heard the word, but the wise man obeyed it. There are many that are hearing the word, but a real Christian is committed to to obedience. When was the last time you did something out of obedience to the word? In other words, you, you understood this is something... I need to do because this is what God's Word said, so I'm going to do it. You maybe didn't even feel like doing it, but out of obedience to the Word, nevertheless, at your Word, I will do it. Peter said that. Jesus said that. It's obedience to the Word. How... How much of your life does the Word of God dictate your obedience? Oh, man, that thought that I just had toward that person, that isn't right. I need to think on whatever things are true and pure. And so out of obedience to the Word of God, I'm taking my thoughts captive, and this is the way I'm going. See, it's not enough to hear the Word. I, I'm glad you're here today, but this this isn't it. I mean, I could bring my dog here today, and she'd probably lay here. She's old enough that she doesn't do much of anything anymore, and she could hear it. And you'd say, "Come on, Pastor, that's a dog. We're animals." What, what James is saying, if you hear the word and don't obey, it's dead faith. It, it doesn't amount to anything. And don't deceive yourself. So, a real Christian is involved in doing the word. 
Then in chapter 2, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, but real Christianity is manifested with our relationship with others. And he gives the, the story. He says, if there comes into your church someone that's pretty well-to-do and you notice that and you say to them, oh, come sit right here. These are the best seats in the house. You come here and you're shaking hands with them and real friendly to them. And there also comes in let's say, a bum off the street to bring the contrast. And you you look at them like, what are they doing here? And you don't even go up to them, and you make them sit on the very front row because those are the worst seats, aren't they, right? But you you show preference is what he's illustrating here. He said... That is not the way a Christian should act. To give preferential treatment. It's motivated by self. It's motivated, wow, this one could maybe do something for me or just to say, I know so-and-so, you know. But this guy, he can't do anything for me. He can't be a blessing to me. And, and I'm not sure I want to hang around them. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. And James is writing, and see, these are natural problems because they're human heart problems. And and he says, in your relationship with others, he said, do you have disregard for others? Or... Are you willing to invest in anyone's life regardless who it is? And this isn't, he, he gives an illustration of a church, but it applies in every area of our life. See, naturally speaking, there are certain people that, and we all have different preferences, by nature there are certain people that we would kind of write off. You see them and you think, you man. He's way out there. I don't want to be around them. And and yet, a believer understands that every human being is made in the image of God and is just as valuable to God as you are or I am or anyone else is. And he said, real Christianity will show up in adjusting our prejudices our preconceived ideas, it will change our attitude toward people, and we'll understand that, and and we won't be showing that preference. It'll affect our relationship with others. Then in James chapter 3, number 5, real Christianity shows up in controlling our tongue. And he, he goes on and he gives this... Um, for the book of James, a quite lengthy description about the tongue. And he says, you know, ships have little rudders that, that control um, the ship. And maybe our example would be planes have little flappers that, that control the plane. And, and even though they're a little member of the plane or a little member of the ship, they, they control the whole thing. 
And he said, the tongue is a little member of your body. And yet it is one that is instrumental in getting us in a lot of trouble or being a blessing to others. And he said, real Christianity is going to affect even our tongue. If the Spirit of God is living within us, if we're truly a child of God, the Spirit of God wants to direct how that thing flaps around and what it says. And and he says, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And if our speech is bitter and negative and angry and vindictive, that betrays us. But he says, if we're a child of God and he's ruling in our hearts, our speech should be such that it builds up, that it's refreshing, that it's godly. So we look at our, we look at our speech. Does it reflect that I'm a child of God? Controlling our tongue. Then he goes in and Kind of dealing with relations, chapter 4 again. But he says, where do wars and fightings come from among you? He said, they come from your own desires, your own lust. You desire to have these things. And he, he, he touches on some matters of prayer here. He said, you, you ask and don't receive because you're asking selfishly to consume it on your own lust. I go to God in prayer, I pray, and my prayers are motivated for me and my desires alone. He says, so, true Christianity is is going to show up in our prayer life. It will affect our motives. Do we pray any differently than the world prays? You might say, well, the world doesn't pray. Well, you know what? When they're in deep enough trouble, they all even pray, God, if if you're there, get me out of this. Is that any different than our prayers? They'll pray, Lord, bless my family. It's not wrong to pray, pray, bless my family. But what do we mean by blessing? See, are we praying prayers that are motivated by the Spirit of God for the glory of God, and are not motivated by our own selfish motives? Do we long to spend time in God's presence? Prayer is fellowship with God. A genuine believer, it it, it doesn't see God as a vending machine. You come up, oh yeah, I'll take one of those, and one of those. No, it, it... it understands its fellowship with God. It understands you're getting resources for service to God. So it affects our prayer. It then affects what we love. In chapter 4 and verse 4, again, James knew these people. He knew he could speak pretty strongly with them because they knew him. They knew he loved him. And he said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. I mean, that's pretty strong language. You bunch of adulterers, he's saying. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So he's saying Christianity will affect what you love. If you love all the things that the world loves, he said that puts you on the wrong side of God. You're, you're an enemy of God. If you love all the, uh, the priorities in your life are no different than the world. He said, you profess that you know God, but you're living as an adulterer. God, I love you, but I'm going to go flirt with this one. I'm going to go run off with this one. I'm going to spend the night with this one. That's literally what he's saying. It will affect what, what we love. Don't wear the ring of Christianity and mess with the world, is what he's saying. I mean, he really used some strong terms here. And it it comes back to what we love. So, again, he's saying real Christianity affects what we love. Verse 13 of chapter 4, he goes into real Christianity will affect our planning. Does our preparation for the future include God's direction, or is it no different than the world's preparation? He goes in and says, you say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such a city. We're going to continue there a year. We're going to buy and sell and get gain. And he says, you're being awful presumptuous there. He's not saying you shouldn't plan. He's not saying you shouldn't plan for the future. He says, you better plan differently than the world. The world does not include God in this. And it's coming and saying, talk about presumption. Today or tomorrow, we don't know that we'll have it. We'll go to such a city. You don't know that you'll get there. We'll buy. You don't know that you'll have the resources to buy or that anyone else has anything for sale. You'll sell and get gain. We've all sold things and not got gain, right? And we'll continue there a year. He's saying, you're being very presumptuous. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. If the Lord wills, we will go and buy and sell and get gain. It's not just adding those words, if the Lord's will, if the Lord wills. It's submitting your plans to the Lord and saying, God, these are my plans, but I give them to you, and I know you are overall, and you can change these any way you want. I am under your authority. That's completely different than the world. The world says, man, I've got this mapped out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Anyway, the world that is sharp and on top of things, that's what they say. But it's completely out of their control. And he says, as a believer, we should be different. We plan, but we understand God ultimately has the final authority. And we submit to him. It shows up in our planning. It shows up in our use of money, our our investments. In chapter 5, he addresses the rich. Go to now, you rich, 
And and honestly, every one of us here today are rich in compared to the rest of the world, compared to the believers that he was writing to in James. Um, I don't know anybody that walked here today. Um, you know, we we have all the comforts, we have all this, and that's not a bad thing. That's the blessing of God. We thank God for that. But he says, your attitude toward your blessings and your finances will be different than the world's. Your purpose for living is not to get ahead, not to get money. That's not your purpose, he's saying. And he addresses them. He says, some of you do not have a clear conscience with how you've gotten your money. You've cheated people. He says, that's the way the world does it. Christians don't do it that way. And he says, you don't use your money for just selfish purposes. You understand the bigger picture of God and you submit it to God. God, you've given me this. How do you want me to be a steward of what you've entrusted? Our use of money, our investment. And then, lastly, Christianity will show up in our patient perseverance. And and he mentions in chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Notice he holds this out. Under the coming of the Lord. You see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, don't get weary in well-doing. A Christian understands that it has the maturity to understand the rewards come later. The rewards come later. You keep planting the seeds and you have patient perseverance that God's going to reward it. You don't get upset and say, plow up the field. I'm done with this. It's not producing what I wanted. You do what is right and know that someday God will reward it. That's different than the world. The world wants to see immediate results. And a Christian says, the Lord is coming again. That's when the score really matters. That's when what he says makes all the difference. Understand, God writes the last chapter of our life. And it's the last chapter that makes all the difference in the world. And realizing that and understanding that, We can persevere. We can patiently endure and rest in it. So you're here today as a believer, as one committed to Christ, and you look at those ten things. Which one would you say right now that God would say, this is an area that we need to to adjust here? Is it? The control of our tongue? Is it our relationship and attitude toward others? Is it we, we, we're, we're here today and we know there are things that God's already told us to do, but we're not doing it. 
and we need to take the step of obedience. Or which one is it? See, the point is not just to hear this today. The point is to say, God, what do you want me to do as a result of hearing this today? It's not a coincidence that God led us to this today. It's not a coincidence that you're here. But if you're a believer, you ought to be saying, God, I want to be a doer of it. And what, what is your priority? It might be in your planning. It might be in the use of money. It might be in, in your response to temptation that you're rationalizing um, sin away. Whatever it is, every one of us ought to look at and have at least one that we say, God, this is what I believe you are dealing in my life And this is what I want to magnify your name in through obedience in this. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't have any power to do any of this. I I am not sure I am a follower of Christ. Although the book of James doesn't, it assumes that everyone is written to is aware of the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into the world to take away our sin, to forgive our sins. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I'm familiar with that, but I've never submitted. Or you might say, you know what, I I haven't even uh, been familiar with this very much, that Christ came to deal with my sin. My sin separated me from God, and because I'm separated from God, if I die With that sin, I'll be separated from him for all eternity. God in heaven, I will be in hell. But Jesus Christ, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came into the world to provide forgiveness for our sins so we can be brought back to God. And it's only through Jesus Christ, as we sang earlier and alluded to, that we might be forgiven and made complete in him. And if you've never called upon Jesus Christ to forgive your sins today, it would make your greatest Christmas ever by calling upon Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. So really, everybody here is in one of two conditions. In need of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins or a believer in Jesus Christ and needing to manifest the character of a Christian. God, show me what you want to change in my life. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would accomplish your purposes in every one of our lives. Lord, help us not to frustrate your grace. I pray that we would be, um, as believers, fully committed to your ways that we would be desirous of reflecting your character. And Lord, that your spirit would, would pinpoint the areas of our life that, that we need to reflect your character and your nature. And that truly our life would match up with our knowledge. Our life would match up with our words. Our life would match up with our profession. And then, Lord, we pray for individuals that have never called upon you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that today they would do that, that they'd give us an opportunity to 
to clearly explain to them how they can know that their sins are forgiven. So, Lord, we look forward to what you will do in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.